Welcome to our Native Women's Equal Pay Day Virtual Talking Circle. My name is Lakinga Jordan, and I am the Executive Director for the California Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. For the past 50 years, the Commission has worked hard to identify and eliminate inequities in state laws and practices that negatively impact women and girls in California. Today, we are partnering with first partner Jennifer Sable Newsom to combat an issue near and dear to my heart and the first partner, Equal Pay. Jennifer Seabell Newsom is a filmmaker and thought leader focused on the work of challenging limiting gender stereotypes and norms. She's focused the work of the First Partners Office on lifting up women and their families and has been an incredible partner to the commission, especially when it comes to equal pay. The commission is honored to be a partner in the Equal Pay Campaign and drawing attention to persistent wage gaps in our state and to bring together brilliant thought leaders like you're here today to find solutions. As a society, we must collectively commit to confronting cultural biases that harm women. Wage gaps must be understood through the intersectional lens of both race and gender. But awareness is only the first step. Active allyship, advocacy, and structural change are needed to build true equality for women of color in California and across this nation. With that, I can turn it over to California's incredible first partner and the architect of the Equal Pay CA campaign, Jennifer C. Bell Newsom, to introduce today's conversation panelist. Thank you. Welcome to our Native Women's Equal Pay Day discussion. Thank you again, McKenna, for that kind introduction and for the Commission's partnership on this very, very important work. So before we get started, I want to acknowledge um, that the land I am tuning in from today is the original homelands of the Miwok and Nisanan tribal nations. And as the first partner of California, I am honored to be joined today by three very inspirational and fearless leaders, Congresswoman Deborah Holland, Chief Justice Christine Williams, and Intel software engineer, Georgia Sandoval. So why are we here? As Lakenya said, today is Native Women's Equal Pay Day, meaning on average, Native women have to work one year and 10 months until today, October 1st, to learn what a white man makes in just one year. We know that the pay gap, gap often only represents just one part of the full picture of discrimination that women face, particularly women of color and especially Native women. Yet the pay gap functions as one of the most obvious ways our society devalues women, and it's one of the most damaging. California women lose $78.6 billion every year to the gap. That's not just a statistic, that is food on the table, a roof over your head, and clothing for growing little ones. That is money for childcare, education, or medical emergencies. That money is the difference maker in many women's lives. Last year, we launched Equal Pay California in partnership with the Commission on the Status of Women and Girls to turn the strongest equal pay laws in the nation into the smallest pay gap in the nation. And through a combination of education, implementation, and enforcement, we're making sure that every woman in California gets her due. Since Equal Pay California's launch in April 2019, we have connected thousands of Californians to our educational pay equity resources. We have hosted roundtables and conversations to hear firsthand about how the pay gaps impact on working women and their families, 
um, is so detrimental. We've launched trainings with the labor commissioner to help working women better understand their rights under the law. And we've secured more than 50 major global corporate commitments or equal pay pledge, including Intel, more on that in the conversation, reaching hundreds of thousands of employees. Now, I think we can all agree that there's never been a more important time to continue our push for gender equity, especially as women of color bear the brunt of the COVID-19 crisis. So today, we're here to have a conversation focused on active allyship, advocacy, and structural change to build true equity for Native women in California and beyond as we navigate the COVID-19 crisis, the recovery, and as we heal as a state and a nation. And so I thank you to all who have joined us today, and I can't wait to hear from these amazing women that I'm sharing the virtual stage with. So let's get right to it by learning a bit more about our panelists. And I could give you a really lengthy bio, but I'm gonna kind of whip through it just so that we can get into the conversation. You should definitely check them out online. So Representative Deborah Holland is a 35th generation New Mexican who has enrolled, is an enrolled member of the Pueblo of Laguna. After a lifetime of organizing communities to stand up for New Mexico families, Congresswoman Holland was elected in 2016 as one of the first two Native American women to serve in Congress. Thank you, Congresswoman. We have Chief Judge Christine Williams, a Yurok tribal member who was appointed by the Wilton Rancheria Tribe Council as the Chief Judge of the Wilton Tribal Court in January of 2020. And to the court, Judge Williams brings 20 years experience in the field of Indian law and 10 years experience serving as a judge for tribes throughout California. Thank you, Judge, for joining us. And we have Georgia Sandoval, who is a member of the Navajo Nation and grew up in Tuba City, Arizona, after spending time raising her daughter, who is now an eight-year-old aspiring scientist, engineer, farmer, and firefighter. Oh my gosh. Um, she completed a bachelor's degree in computational mathematical sciences at Arizona State University. And she's currently a cloud and enterprise solutions engineer at Intel and Irvine. So thank you, Georgia, also for joining us. It's really exciting, you guys. Um, we're going to have a great conversation here. And to start off, I want to, I have an icebreaker question. Um, and I'm going to ask this of each of you. And I don't care whoever wants to go first. But we are one month from the election. We just celebrated 100 years of women's suffrage, of women receiving the right to vote. Though we know that for many women, including Native women, that right was actually secured many years later and that access issues still remain today. So when was the first time you voted and what did that mean for you? Uh, Jennifer, thank you. I'm so inspired right now uh, because uh, California is, is inspiring the nation to make sure that women uh, get the pay that they deserve. Um, you know, I, I voted, um, I registered to vote the day I turned 18 and so I voted in my first election at that early age. I first registered as an independent because I just didn't know, you know, uh, where my, uh, you know, where my values uh, lay at the time. I was raised in a military family. Um, and, and uh, but I'll say that after I voted the first time, I saw how pivotal, how pivotal the native vote could be. And after that, I realized that I really wanted just to make sure that more Native Americans got out to vote. So uh, hence my organizing career uh, began. 
And, um, and yes, yeah, so, so now I, I, I vote uh, every single time and I've raised a daughter also who has voted in every single election since she was 18. That's great, thank you, Congresswoman. Judge, Christine Williams. Thank you. Uh, well, similar to the Congresswoman, I have never missed an election since I turned 18. And um, the first time I was able to vote was actually in 1993. I narrowly missed the presidential election in 1992. I was actually a freshman at UCLA and I was 17. So I wasn't old enough to vote when the election came. Um, three weeks later, I, I, would have, I would have been able to vote. So I got to see all of my friends voting for the first time on campus. I was asked so many times to register to vote as I walked along you know, the campus walkways. Um, but I, since then, um, never missed a vote in either a federal, state, local, or tribal election. I vote in all my tribal elections. And um, my daughter's not old enough to vote yet either, but I'm hoping that she will follow in the footsteps of Congresswoman's daughter and never miss an election. And if she does, then that'll be four generations I know of for sure that have never missed an election in my family. Thank you. Georgia. Yes, so um, I unofficially voted for the first time in 2008. I was 17 and our high school um, on the reservation hosted a mock presidential election. So that was when we got to go through like what it means to um, vote as an 18 year old, even if we weren't 18. Uh, Obama won in a landslide with a few write-ins for our English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so then my official um, election was 2012. That's great. That's such a great um, idea. We've been talking about that in California um, to host and these mock elections for younger children to help them understand the value of uh, participating in the electoral process and, and being their citizenship, right? So well done. I love that you learned that at an early age. Um, so we know that the pay gap contributes to a huge loss in the wages of Native women, um, close to the million dollar mark over a 40 year career. That's a lot. How does this financial strain impact Native women in particular? Who wants to go first? Judge? Oh uh, yeah, I'm happy to go first. I think that um, there's the obvious um, financial strains that anyone would go through having that kind of a loss. But for me, I. I'm really concerned about the internalization of the self-value or the devaluing of oneself. Um, I think that carries through to your home life, um, to your profession. And instead of women feeling empowered through financial security to the, in, go after raises and higher paying positions, um, I think they internalize this devaluing. And so instead they um, become part of the cycle that really continues this wage gap for Native women. That's right, really, it's eloquently said. Thank you for sharing that. Congresswoman Holland? Sure, uh, I mean, I guess I would say, I mean, we need to think about how that, um, how that pay gap affects so many other parts of everyone's life, right? Uh, healthcare, education, job training, childcare, I could never, I couldn't afford to, uh, I couldn't afford childcare ever when my daughter was growing up. As a single mom, it's nearly impossible 
to afford childcare. So, um, and, and these were times when I was in, in law school, in graduate school, um, having to take my daughter with me to class because I didn't have a choice uh, in that. Um, so, so I feel like we just need to think about how, you know, finding ways as a legislator, of course, um, working on a universal child care bill that will help um, single moms or, or any moms, any dads, in fact, uh, to be, be able to afford child care um, so that they can use their, uh, you know, their salaries for other means. So they don't have to worry and juggle. Should I pay uh, the rent this time and, and not pay my student loans? Should I pay utilities and not my rent? I mean, these are, and especially now during the pandemic, these are things that, uh, that worry me so much about, about folks who, who need to be paid a fair wage. And so um, I just wanna do whatever I can to uh, make these things a little bit easier and certainly uh, never vote to take away somebody's health care. Uh, never vote to squeeze, you know, the SNAP benefits so that fewer people um, can qualify for them. We need to expand these programs so that um, people have what they need and their children can grow up healthy. Georgia, you have you, you have a, an eight-year-old daughter now, is that correct? Yeah. But how has the pandemic really, do you feel it's really impacting Native women? So I can speak from my own experience, um, and it's very similar to Congresswoman Deb Holland's experience. I was actually going to talk about childcare. Uh, so that was one of the hardest things for me as a student, and when I became a professional engineer, uh, it's outrageous. I was struggling to go to school full-time. I um, was able to find an internship during the school year that helped, but it, you know, it's trying to take care of that and then my housing and um i had to rely on things like um wick was amazing i was on food stamps at one point uh and medicare i took advantage of everything the government could provide so that i could get myself through school to give my better my daughter a better life um and then i thought it would be better when i got my first full-time job and um you know that like everything would just come like that uh and then to find that like oh <laughs> child care just keeps rising um it's outrageous uh, i remember i was told i was getting a, a discount for being um an intel employee but it was still so much more <laughs> even with the discount and um i had to move to a city that had higher rents so that was everything was pretty much double from where I moved from in Phoenix. Um, and then you have um, Native women who, you know, live in multi-generational homes. And it's very big for us, um, we call ourselves urban natives, <laughs> to, to come back to the reservation and we'll help out the best way we can. Uh, try to go back for ceremonies, um, help out financially with these ceremonies. These ceremonies can get pretty pricey. Uh, uh, taking care of family members when we can, you know, because it really does take a village to take care of um, your family. Uh, so just 
this wage gap affects us on so many levels and it starts affecting us mentally and emotionally. That's right. That's right. I'm exactly right. Well, let's, I mean, let's continue this conversation bringing COVID-19 into the picture, which obviously makes it all worse, right? We know that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted women of color um, and the Native community has been heavily impacted. How has COVID-19 impacted your community and in particular, how has it impacted women in your community? Well, I'll say that um, in New Mexico, Native Americans are about 11% of the population. And at one time, uh, over 50% of the positive cases. Um, our governor, uh, who um, is a woman of color, uh, she has done an excellent job in, in working to protect, to keep us all safe. And so the numbers are going down in New Mexico and we're very grateful. But look, um, it, it's the women who, uh, if you're a single mom, if you are uh, the breadwinner of the family, um, you don't get to stop working, right? You, you have to keep working. Uh, you got to worry about your children in, in, in communities where broadband internet isn't readily available. And so when schools are closed and your kids don't have access to the internet, um, how are you going to get them the educational opportunities that they need and deserve? A lot of native communities don't have running water. They don't have electricity. Their water's polluted. Uh, they live, you know, 70, 80, 90 miles away from the closest um, doctor or clinic. And that's when telehealth might come in really handy during a time like this uh, for people who are anxious and want to ask questions about what this virus means to their communities. Um, and so that's a little bit of the picture. Uh, we have so much work to do. Uh, what this pandemic has done, of course, is shine a spotlight on all of the disparities of communities of color. Native Americans are absolutely one of those communities. Thank you. Judge Williams? Well, it's an interesting question because I consider my community to actually intersect in a couple of different ways. So there's a community that I live in, which is uh, in the suburbs of the Bay Area. And so I, I too consider myself to be an urban Indian. And so for that community, what I think has been really difficult during COVID is um, we're not experiencing necessarily the broadband issues. There's a lot more availability of technology and Wi-Fi. A lot of the schools were more equipped to provide that equipment than on, you know, say my own reservation or nearby reservations. Um, but it's the isolation, um, the total isolation the numbers went up quickly and they stayed up. And so while we would normally see a lot of our community gatherings this summer, um, festivals, uh, my own tribe salmon festival obviously did not happen. It wouldn't have been safe. Um, powwows, big times, all of those events didn't happen. Um, addition, in addition to that, our ceremonies for a lot of tribes, at least in California, occurred during the summer and, and those didn't happen. Um, even family visits home didn't happen. And so I think that, you know, when we are able to regroup, I'm concerned about the mental health issues and um, the emotional issues of the isolation that's been happening, um, especially because we're, we're trying to intersect with a, a rural community and 
you know, Zoom calls don't necessarily work as well out where there isn't as much broadband. So, so that's what, um, and that's kind of always an issue, I think, for urban Indian people is, is having that distance from home. And, and so having it heightened by the isolation of COVID has been really tough. And then in my own tribe, Yurok, we've just been dealing with the same thing all other tribes are dealing with. Um, but I do have to just sort of give some praise to our leadership because they sprung into action so quickly to, to be able to get aid to families who needed it, to small businesses who needed it. Um, they were able to um, be really clear on the guidance around safety on the reservation and to enforce that diligently. So hats off to um, my tribal government at this time. And another, um, another sort of thought and prayer, if you will, to all of my relations who are dealing with the wildfires on top of COVID. Um, that's been really um, difficult and adding to our already compromised community. Natives have terrible health statistics, unfortunately. And so to add the, the smoke as an additional problem, the stress of not necessarily knowing if you can go home safely, um, it's been a lot this year, but we're resilient people. So I'm, I'm excited to see what opportunities we make out of these losses today. I appreciate the optimism. Thank you both for, for your answers. Georgia. Yes, yeah, so um, there, there was a lot of press in my community um, on the Navajo Nation. So uh, I grew up in Tuba City, Arizona. And when COVID uh, became a pandemic, that was one of the areas for the first clusters on the Navajo Nation. Um, and on the Navajo Nation and other reservations, we rely on the Indian Health Service hospitals, IHS hospitals. And those will, um, those will cover, you know, hundreds of miles of um, land. And just to get from your home to this hospital, this rural hospital, it could take 30 minutes to an hour. So when this happened, um, uh, it was pretty hard. I was getting calls um, almost daily of, you know, who in the community passed away. Um, uh, and there was that fear, you know, my Native Americans have a high rate of diabetes and um, heart disease and cancer. And my whole family has that. My, my, um, some of my siblings and my um, parents both deal with that. And um, when you, you compound that with um, high rates of poverty, some people don't have vehicles. Um, and so how are they gonna get to the hospital if they're feeling sick? So there were, there were, there were some, um, some people were saying that there were people dying before they could get to the rural hospital. Uh, and because they're multi-generational homes too, it would affect the next family member. It affects your sister, it affects your mom. Um, so we were just getting swept out by that. And um, we, I mean, I really, I'm really happy that from the beginning, the Navajo Nation uh, took it seriously. They went out there and made sure to try to do house calls to um, get funding to the hospitals. And when the CARES Act came out, that I think that was probably one of the harder parts of this is that it we didn't get the funding right away. 
they needed the funding and um, it took a long time to get the CARES Act out. And then it was, you know, how are you gonna disperse it? Um, so uh, yeah, <laughs> just COVID is hitting pretty hard. And like the, um, the judge was saying, it's hard when you don't have broadband too with the new changes in our society, you know, with online education. Yeah, so many extra hurdles to overcome. Um, I wanna go back to the pay gap because we know that there are many different causes or, or um, con contributing factors to the pay gap from gender bias and discrimination to job segregation, you know, women's industries, women's work to lack of family-friendly policies like a federal paid family leave plan. Um, can each of you share what in particular you think is driving the wage gap for Native women? And then what are the biggest barriers for Native women receiving higher paying jobs or just equitable pay to their male counterparts? You know, we join the workforce and uh, nobody tells you that you're supposed to negotiate for a fair wage, right? You you go in and yeah, you might have more education than your male counterpart. You might have more experience than your male counterpart. Uh, if you're not getting paid the same, uh, you know, how, how do you really know that? How, how do you, um, I think that we all need to um, make sure that, uh, that we speak up that, and not be afraid to speak up, that we seek out mentors um, in, in the, you know, in the work world, uh, people who have done this before so that when you're entering the workforce, you have somebody to call and say, what do I do? Uh, but we need to just think about our own value as women, as, as human beings, as, as, you know, protectors and, and, and care, you know, the caretakers of our families. Um, you know, the knowledge that's passed down to Native women, um, it, is, it, is, it is big and it's valuable. And so um, I think, I mean, it's pretty amazing that, um, that we are ha having this conversation actually. Um, so I, I want to just, you know, whatever Native women are watching this right now, uh, you are valuable. Uh, don't be afraid to speak up. Um, seek out mentors who will help you to navigate this system. And um, because I think we all just need to demand this, right? It's, um, and of course there again, as a, as a legislator, um, I wanna, I mean, I wanna make sure that we are always, always taking that into consideration and working to remedy it. Right. It's true. If you don't negotiate your first job, you stand to lose. I think the business school study was a, 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 another million dollars um, in, over the course of your 40-year career. So it's similar to the Native women stat. And maybe that's something that we can um, encourage uh, young Native women to really do in their first job opportunity out the gate is to advocate, negotiate, which again is we, we women aren't as socialized in, in that negotiation process, um, but that might be a, a, a start. I'm not taking a, a responsibility off the plates of you know, the systemic injustice or the men in power, um, but I, I 
hear you, um, and we have a lot of work to do. Uh, Judge, Judge Williams. Thank you. Um, well, I totally agree with all the comments that have been made. Um, in addition, I just want to add that I think there are layers of stereotypes that Native women face in the workplace. So there are all the stereotypes that you face being a woman trying to enter the, the workplace. And then there's um, being Native American. For me personally, that's played out in a lot of having to um, defend or prove my achievements over and over. Um, so being questioned about, do, did I really earn the position that I'm in? Do, do I really earn the money that I'm paid? Um, and so that has been something that's been really pervasive like throughout my career and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but it's people basically dismissing achievement starting from um, being admitted to UCLA just on my own high school campus with friends that I'd grown up with all my life saying, oh, you only got in because you're native. Um, even though they knew and, and you guys back home knew, know who I'm talking about, you know my grades were better than yours. <laughs> Um, so, you know, everyone achieves at different things. And I think it's important to create spaces for all different types of achievement. But for me, it was school, Scholastic. And um, I liked the whole experience of school, being on campus and getting grades. That, that was just where it fit for me. So it was really disappointing to see that I was going to carry this. I still have this happen. I'll be out socially and someone will say, um, well, you wouldn't be able to get into UCLA now. Oh, but you're native, so you probably could. I mean, it's just, it's dismissive, it's rude, and that kind of devaluing follows me around in, in what I'm paid and what people think I should be valued at. So, um, you know, I'm really interested to hear from Ms. Sandoval how as a young woman and um, newer and on the, you know, newer end of your career than where I am, have things gotten better? <laughs> I actually, I can speak on, you know, from the tech sector as a young engineer on um, things I've heard and things I've experienced. Um, and yes, I do agree with it. You know, you're labeled as a diversity hire. A lot of us are labeled that and it's hard to shake that. And um, what people don't realize too is that sometimes like when you hire someone who's diverse, you're really, you're really putting your name on the line. So you got to make sure they're the best of the best. Cause you know, someone else is going to say, you know, like, oh, they're just a diversity hire. And people don't realize that. Um, but I, you know, I look back at the way I was raised, um, the way a lot of us native women were raised to where we were told, you know, you defer to your elders, um, to the wise person in the room, you, you think before you speak, you, um, you know, you remain humble. That, that's hard to do and when you're looking for a promotion. <laughs> when you are looking for a new job and you're in an interview and they're throwing things at you and you're expected to speak up and be like, yes, yes, and this is how I'm gonna do it. Um, what if you're a woman who wants the other person to speak, wants them to, um, say what they need to say first so you can listen. Um, I've been told before, like, you're too quiet. <laughs> you need to speak up. And to me, it's like, oh, you know, I was listening to you. And <laughs> I am confident. I was just listening to you. 
And I've heard that so many times with other Native women where they tell me they'll go in for a promotion and they're told, these are your weaknesses. One, you don't speak up. Two, you know, <laughs> I don't, you're doing too many, um, too many diversity initiatives. Where, where is your, where's your data? <laughs> what else are you putting out there? Um, I'm pretty grateful because I landed in a very progressive company. Uh, they were uh, one of the companies that signed the pledge with uh, the first partner and they closed the pay gap by 2018. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, and I did have the problem where I came in and um, I was labeled as a math major because my major was math and some people will compare that to engineering and say that's less than, so they should be paid less than, even though you're doing the same amount of work. Um, I don't know who else experiences that, but <laughs> I did experience that. And I relied heavily on my native female mentors to push me to negotiate, to push me to, to um, get promotions, to ask for more money. Good for you, that is smart. We all need female mentors and female sponsors and male sponsors, but really women in positions above you, mentoring you and showing you how to get through it is, is fabulous. Um, let's, let's continue on a thread that you guys were getting to, which is that data shows that Native women experience unequal pay at every education level. So, and that the gap actually widens the more education that Native women receive. So the widest gap, which is like, does not make sense to me, but the widest gap for Native women compared to white men is for those with bachelor's and master's degrees. So there's a bigger gap for women who are more educated. That makes no sense to me. Why is this and what can we do about it? Congresswoman Holland, do you? Sure, thank you. Um, so, I mean, look, the status quo in the United States, it doesn't hold employers responsible for ensuring equal pay for equal work. Uh, instead, that burden is placed on women to, as I mentioned in the last thing, right, negotiate for their wages. If I would have known that, I, I could have, uh, you know, figured that out on my first job myself. Um, uh, when we know uh, men walk into the workplace with higher offers to begin with, so um, we feel like we're disadvantaged in so many areas. And um, I, I, I have to say, I'm grateful that Congress uh, has equal pay. The men don't get paid more than the women. Uh, and if we are we doing this in our, our government, uh, we need to be making sure that we are doing everything we can to push that for the rest of the country. Uh, if we're a country that believes, sorry about all the background noise here. Uh, if we're a country that believes in the notion that hard work and perseverance deliver the American dream, uh, then everyone needs to live up to that. And um, you know what, this is not helped either by uh, the pay, you know, the inequity that we are suffering from, um, where at some point we stopped valuing the work that people do and started giving the richest folks in the country all the pay raises and everyone at the bottom 
uh, no pay raises, right? No health care, no pay raises, no benefits. So we, we need to just demand that change. Um, people need a fighting chance in this country. And, um, and so, you know, passing the Paycheck Fairness Act, uh, for example, we were able to get that done out of the House. Uh, it's sitting on the desk of Mitch McConnell collecting dust because I guess he doesn't feel that that's important to our country. So on top of that, I will say, uh, get out and vote and elect the leaders who are going to support equal pay for women. You don't have to be a woman to support equal pay. You can be a man in, off, in public office and support equal pay for women. So, uh, so that should be a question that we're all asking folks who are running for office before we uh, uh, you know, spend our precious vote on somebody who doesn't think that we deserve to be paid the same uh, as, as the men. Well said, thank you. Judge Williams? So I, again, I have to just agree with everything that the Congresswoman said. That's why you're in office, it's clear. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to add something that I don't think gets discussed very much. And I hope it doesn't cast me in an unpopular light, but I'll be honest, wouldn't be the first time. Um, but it's the concept of strategic underemployment. I think a lot of Native women um, who are highly educated, such as uh, all of the women that are participating here today, uh, often have options and choose to um, make choices that underemploy them either by um, what their hourly rate is gonna be, taking positions that aren't as competitive, either in salary or in terms of how much you're working and what the environment's like. Um, I think it's done because we are burdened with caretaking. Uh, and it, we've talked a lot about moms. I'm a mom myself, um, but it's, it's also taking care of um, ailing elders who are in our family or um, really not thinking twice if a, um, a niece or nephew needs to come and stay with you for any extended period of time. I see this across all of my friends who are all professional native women. Um, I have friends who are non-native as well. Um, but it, it's something that I see in the Native community really prevalently is this, this caretaker role that it's, you don't think twice about it. And so um, there's, I feel a certain sense of pressure to keep my time somewhat available um, to be able to fill that role. I also enjoy it. I like being a mom. I like being able to be part of my, you know, daughter's Girl Scout troop when that was relevant. She's getting very older now, but, um, you know, I liked being able, I, I am in a volunteer league with my son and those things are things I wanna make time for. And I don't know that they would be given consideration if I was in a, um, you know, top earning law firm where it's all about the almighty billable hour. Thank you for that. Georgia, I wanna pivot because I wanna get to you on Intel where you work and you signed our equal pay pledge and you've been very, and, and Intel has been very public about their steps to close the gender pay gap. What more can all companies and the public sector do to help build a bigger pool of professional Native women and support them in their work? Yeah, uh, so like I said before, Intel is a very progressive company um, and that relates to how I was hired too. So I was an active member of the American Indian Science and Engineering Society and they hold national conferences every year, leadership summits, where they focus on helping these native um, students in STEM. And Intel has 
been putting in a lot of money towards these different diversity organizations. So when Intel showed up at the national conference, that's where they brought me on. They, um, you kind of, I feel like a lot of companies focus on things like how good are they at writing out this algorithm and explaining every single step. And that, um, that's not what Intel did to me. <laughs> they wanted to figure out if I was resilient. They wanted to know like, if I, you know, if I throw you into a new environment, are you gonna thrive and um, reach out for help? How are you gonna do it? That was mainly the question I got. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a woman. So yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I will be resilient. Um, and since I've been at Intel, it's pretty amazing everything that I've been able to do for Native Americans. Uh, they implemented a program, it was called the Next Generation of Native American Coders. And they went in on my reservation, the Navajo Nation, and they, they set up um, classes with a couple of the high schools. And they started teaching these students from junior year into senior year of how to code. And we had Intel employees come in, Native Intel employees come in and teach them about their day-to-day -day job. And then we would send them out to these conferences uh, so they could look at the schools. And then once they decided to go to school, we provided them scholarships for their four years. Uh, we made sure to follow them through the entire pipeline. Um, and like other ways they're helping out is we have employee resource groups. So when I got hired on, they had a Native American woman who I knew call me and tell me all about you know, how she was able to build a community in the tech sector. And that was just above and beyond any other company. And I knew right then and there, I was like, you know, this is a good place where I can bring my daughter and I can bring myself, my native self, and I can be supported. And I feel like a lot of companies need to look past, um, you know, just a resume or, you know, how many internships have they had before or, you know, how much do they know this code? I feel like a lot of companies need to, need to look at the, the whole person and um, Intel's doing a great job at that. Thank you. Judge Williams, I wanna just um, bring up, you know, last year at our round table on Native Women's Equal Pay Day, you mentioned the discrimination many women face in the legal profession. Uh, can you tell us more about the cultural factors that are contributing to that pay gap for Native women in the legal or just women broadly in the legal field. And just in lieu of Justice Ginsburg's passing, how do we break up the old boys network of how judicial appointments are made, not just in sovereign native courts, but in our larger judicial system? And how do we ensure there are more native women um, in the pool? Thank you. Well, I think, um, you know, I wish I had all the answers, but I think we're all still trying to figure some of this out together. But I definitely can speak to what I've witnessed in the in the legal profession on, uh, in terms of my own experience, and then again, female colleagues. Um, you know, it's it's not it was not uncommon for me to be asked in a professional setting, um, "Who's watching your kids?" Uh, my husband, who's also an engineer, um, has never been asked that ever. I asked him one time, "Just do people ask you who's watching our kids?" And he said, no, no one ever asked me that. Um, 
And the other thing that I was asked uh, often, and, and I don't know that this is um, specific to the legal profession, but, um, but lawyers tend to be very type A and assertive, myself included. And um, people have, were not shy at all about asking, what is your blood quantum? What, what percentage native are you? And both of those questions are judgments. They're not really questions. Um, one is about judging me for not being home with my children. And one is about, um, I want to know how native you're gonna say you are to measure whether or not you meet my standard of what a Native American should be. And unfortunately in this country, most of us have a very stereotyped image of what Native people are and what Native women are. And for Native women, if you look at the statistics around sexual violence and domestic violence and assault, um, women, Native women are victimized. And I think that, um, you know, our, our, we're over-sexualized and it leads into all of this pay gap. And so people should not feel comfortable to ask personal questions of a professional colleague who has a law degree and is working mm -hmm. as an attorney, um, mm -hmm. but they did. Um, and, and again, this is not something my husband's ever experienced in his, in his profession or in, in you know, his workplaces. Um, and it, again, it, it follows into the social setting. Um, people assume I'm a judge, again, because uh, it's a token appointment, because I'm Native, and that if I wasn't Native, I, I wouldn't be in this position. Um, and I, I disagree strongly. I think the tribes I've served would also disagree. So uh, I do take pride in the fact that I've worked in um, the legal profession uh, primarily with tribes. I think they're doing a decent job at honoring the value of women in, in all different settings, but there's there's work to do everywhere. Tribes are not immune. Um, so, so, you know, I don't know that those are definitely specific to the legal profession, except that it was so male dominated when I did come in and talking about mentors, there just aren't a lot of women on the bench. And so I knew I wanted to be a judge and was incredibly lucky to have um, the first a uh, Native American woman who was admitted to practice in California, Abby Abenanti. It just happens to be a tribal member of mine and graciously agreed to meet with me in San Francisco for um, lunch one day. And it, it turned into a relationship we still have. So, um, but again, you know, my, my tribe's one of the largest in California. So we do have a handful of lawyers. Navajo has a ton of lawyers. I know um, other tribes have a lot, a lot more lawyers. The Pueblos, I think, are also um, excelling in those numbers. But out in California, I don't see Native people going into the legal profession as often as I'd like. And I definitely don't see Native women showing up next to me on the bench as often as I'd like. Work to be done in that arena. Um, Congresswoman Holland, as one of two of the first Native women elected to Congress, what inspired you to run? What does it mean for you to be the first? And how can we help ensure more Native women can follow in your leadership footsteps? Right. So, you know, my, my, essentially my political career started out because I wanted more Indians to vote. That was my focus for so long. Uh, you know, making phone calls, knocking on doors, getting out the native vote. And I traveled all over the state of New Mexico doing that every single election. Um, and I enjoyed it, right? I really felt like it was worth my time. Um, when I decided to run for this seat, um, the seat became open. Uh, my predecessor is now the governor of our state of New Mexico. 
but I, I mean, one of the reasons I got in, yes, was um, Congress has never heard a voice like mine. We came up with that slogan and that's what I used all through the election. Congress has never heard a voice like mine. And, um, and like, you know, like so many folks who we're talking about, I didn't have a native woman I could call or asked to meet with to tell me how did you know this is how I did it this is what you should do sort of advising me and helping me to run you know go through all of the hurdles that I had to um, likewise uh, there was no you know uh, there was no no native woman in Congress that people could sort of judge my standard by I had a lot of people say I couldn't do it you'll never raise the money you'll never get the support uh, you can't win. It was, of course, they didn't say that to my face. It was just like all the talk that we had, um, you know, all around in political circles. And, and even when I visited Washington, D.C. a few times, some folks were saying, sorry, uh, you know, she's never going to make it out of the primary. Um, well, I did make it out of the primary. It turned out that all of the hard work that I had done for, um, for a long, long time uh, turned into volunteers, and um, you might know that sometimes volunteers are better than money. And, um, and so I um, made a pledge to leave the ladder down uh, for other Native women to climb because I'm the first, you know, one of the first, me and Sharice Davids, we're the first. Uh, we don't want to be the last. So I want to make sure that we are bu building the bench of, of, of women, Native women, to run for office. It's something I say all the time. Um, you know, if you, uh, if you ask a man to run for office, he'll say yes the first time, but you have to ask a woman seven times before she'll say yes. That's the statistic that we go by. So if you see some, some awesome Native women who you think would be great on a ballot, ask them once and ask them up to seven times because uh, they'll take forever to think about it. But look, we need more Native women in public office all over the country because we need their perspective on things. We need their perspective on the environment, on, you know, on childcare, on, on entrepreneurs, because as it turns out, uh, there are a lot of Native people who are entrepreneurs because they live in rural communities and they have to make a living for themselves. They don't, you know, they don't want to drive into or they don't have a car to drive into the cities every single time uh, to go to work. So, so we know how it is, right? We know uh, how Indian country is uh, and then we can, uh, you know, feel like we're having a perspective that's valuable in these spaces, but we need Native women on school boards and on city councils and in county commissions and in governorships and state legislatures. Um, we need Native women's input every single place. And so that's why I have uh, worked extremely hard to, uh, you know, lift Native women up and help them to run for office. Thank you. That's oh, beautiful. Thank you for inspiring us there. So um, I'm going to um, just one last sort of um, closing comments from you or questions to each other to close out the discussion. But if in there you can share with me, each of you, please, maybe Georgia, we'll start with you. What more we can do as allies to support Native women? 
what more we as listeners can do to support Native women into leadership in all spheres, all walks of life. But, but, but also as allies, I'm an ally, I want to be seen as an ally. What, what can we all do collectively who are um, watching this uh, conversation do to support Native women into leadership? I'd say to be an ally, it's not just saying you're an ally, it's actually uh, making changes. Uh, I feel like um, a lot of people need to look at themselves, address their behaviors, address their biases, because everyone has a bias. And this needs to come from all levels. Uh, when you have uh, a manager or an executive or an engineer, anyone at any level who looks at what they view as a leader, it changes from person to person. And they tend to look inside, you know, a copy of themselves of what they view as leadership. Um, and I think they're uh, like um, Congresswoman Holland was saying, there needs to be more women out there in public office. There needs to be more native women in, in the tech field and more native CEOs, more native everything. <laughs> um, and I feel like uh, that's like one of the biggest things for me is if we can get them at different levels, I think there'll be sweeping change. Yes, right on. We want more Native women on corporate boards too. Judge Williams. Hi, thank you. There are so many things that, you know, we could continue talking forever, I think, in this group. Um, but I think one thing I want to highlight is the concept of um, Native women volunteering their expertise uncompensated to help improve things not only for themselves but usually for the greater good and so it goes it's it's a two-pronged issue in my opinion um, a lot of uh, times i i meet with state partners and they want to change and they don't know where to start and so they want input from the native community and i don't know if they realize the extra toll it takes when the same group of um, Native people, a lot of times Native women, are tapped to be on boards, be on commissions, participate in, um, you know, focus groups without any regard for what time they may be taking off from work, what compensation they may be putting aside to be able to be there. Um, and so, you know, just in my own experience being asked to participate um, when I worked for the Judicial Council as part of the state um, tribal liaisons group, um, I, I had to do that on my own time. The Judicial Council wasn't considering it work. And so I had a choice to either participate in this group of other Native liaisons and tribal um, working in, uh, in state agencies or, you know, and, and lose pay or, or to not participate at all. And so those kinds of choices need to stop. And then I'll just employ all of the Native women. You're valuable, your time is valuable. So the next time I ask you to do something and I offer to pay you, don't say you'll volunteer. Yeah. Stipend, take the hourly payment, you're worth it. And um, I like to hearken it back to um, many generations ago in my tribe, we had medicine women mm -hmm. and they were healers. They went through training similar to the way doctors would today. It was intense and it was um, you know, only really the best and the, and the strongest and the brightest made it to that level. Um, and when they would provide medicinal support for families, for people in their villages and, in, and throughout our community, they were always compensated. 
families would definitely make sure that that person knew they were valued with tangible, real payment. Um, and so that kind of expertise, it needs to be valued today. So I want to remind Native women, um, you are healers, you are valuable, um, your role should be uh, compensated in some way, even if it's something that's really an honoring token. Um, not enough with the volunteering your native wisdom let's let's um, i'm not saying don't be generous it's just i want to i want to be able to compensate the people that add value to the work i do thank you right on thank you congresswoman holland last words please. yeah last words well i mean yes agree with everything that my esteemed panelists have have also um said today and i'm so honored to be with every single one of you thank you so much for having me uh, I mean, look, uh, what I'm thinking about allies, it's just like bring, bring Native women to the table. It's their voices that we need to hear always. And so, uh, you know, bring them to the table and, uh, and let them speak. And I think our country will learn a tremendous amount. I love that. Thank you. That's beautiful. This has been so inspiring. I would love to spend more time with all of you and break bread in person. I, <laughs> I um, feel um, such um, a beautiful synergy and commitment um, to righting the, the wrongs and injustices and really uh, partnering um, to elevate and raise um, Native women's voices and experiences and ensure that they do have seats at the tables of power. Um, thank you so much to all of you for watching. Um, I hope that you'll stay in touch with us and learn more about how you as individuals and companies and organizations can join our campaign to close the pay gap. Please follow the Office of First Partner on social media. Go to gov.ca.gov backslash equal dash pay for more information and next steps. Uh, again, I'm so grateful to all of you for participating and for joining us and for your incredible leadership in creating a better world. We are so indebted to each and every one of you. Onwards. Thank you.